This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 30 Arguments Against the Law's Political Use Quote, Theonomists preach and promote biblical laws, authority, and wisdom, praying that citizens will be persuaded willingly to adopt God's standards as the law of the land. End quote. Even when they grant that the law of God has a general validity in the New Testament age, some Christians nevertheless believe that it is wrong to maintain that this validity and use of the law extend to the political realm. They say, The law of God may be generally binding in personal, ecclesiastical, and interpersonal social affairs, but it should not be the standard for political justice and practice in the modern world. Since this attitude conflicts directly with the conclusions to which we have been brought by our study of biblical teaching regarding the law, we need to listen to the reasons which are offered for a negative attitude toward the political use of God's law today. Are they of sufficient weight to overthrow our understanding of the biblical requirements? It would not seem so. Arguments pertaining to God's law in the state. 1. Directionless Revelation Some would have us believe that God's new covenant revelation has no direction for political morality, for, it is thought, social reform in an unbelieving society is not a proper task for the Christian. This truncated view of Christianity, however, is what stands opposed to new covenant revelation. Christ is now king of kings, and in the future he will judge all magistrates for their rule. Christians are to be holy in all manner of life, even in their relation to the powers that be. The church has been commissioned to teach the nations whatsoever Christ has commanded, and that includes his words pertaining to socio-political morality and the validity of the Old Testament law. Christianity is to be salt that influences the earth and light which is not put under a basket. Indeed, Christianity is a complete world and life view, not simply a narrowly religious message about the afterlife. God is not the God merely of the churches. He is the living God over all creation. So what standard for political morality should God's people adopt today, if not God's revealed law? Does not their political opposition to the man of lawlessness tell us where they find their guidance by contrast? 2. The Uniqueness of Covenant Israel Some have argued that it is mistaken to see the civil aspects of the Old Testament law as binding on modern states because such a view overlooks the context of the Old Testament law as given only to Israel as a redeemed nation placed in a national covenant with God. Since modern nations are not in the same place or situation as Old Testament Israel, for example, not being redeemed for a national covenant with the Lord, it is thought that imposing God's civil law on those who do not participate in redemptive covenant with God, or those who have not been converted or joined the church, would be to overlook the only proper context for such a law. In reply, we need to remind those who voice this criticism that we are not advocating the forcible imposition of God's law on an unwilling society. Theonomists preach and promote biblical laws, authority, and wisdom, praying that citizens will be persuaded willingly to adopt God's standards as the law of the land. 
as secularists campaign and debate to see their convictions influence civil law, so Christians should work to have God's word influence civil law instead. We do not advocate any modern holy war or use of force to compel submission to God's standards. Not everything about ancient Israel is to be made part of our modern political experience, as the above indicates. We are concerned simply with the standing laws of civil justice. Holy war, during Israel's conquering of the promised land, was by God's direct and specific command, for a set time and place, concerning particular abominable cultures of that day. It was not standing civil policy for all men, any more than was the specific order for Samuel to anoint David king of Israel at a set time and place. The laws that God revealed in the Old Testament concerning general types of situations, for example murder, rape, perjury, had a standing or policy character over against special imperatives for particular occasions. Accordingly, ancient Israel experienced from time to time a variety of different kinds of political administration, tribal heads, city elders, liberator judges, the monarchy, ruling council, etc. From this we see that God has not prescribed a particular administrative form for political government. We are not obligated today to abolish the three branches of civil government in the United States, or the British Parliament, or the Monarchy of Jordan, etc. What is proposed here is that all civil governments, whatever their structure, should be encouraged to submit to and apply the standing laws of Old Testament Israel. Still, some would criticize this proposal, claiming that even the standing laws pertaining to civil government were uniquely for Israel as a nation redeemed by God and in national covenant with Him. What such arguments imply is that modern political policy for secular nations ought not to be learned from the principles of the Mosaic Law for covenanted Israel. So then, does God's word teach that the Old Testament civil law was restricted in validity to Israel as a nation in redemptive covenant with God? Previous chapters have clearly shown that it does not. God judged nations outside of Israel for transgressing the standards of his law, and in his revelation to Israel, he encouraged the spreading of the law to the Gentile nations. In the New Testament, Christ endorsed every jot and tittle of the law of God, unless qualified by scripture elsewhere, and the apostolic writers acknowledged the law of God as the standard for political ethics, even in the day of pagan Roman emperors. The redemptive history and national covenant enjoyed by Israel certainly set the Old Testament Jews apart from modern nations as significantly unique. But this does not mean that Israel was in every respect different from her neighbors or from nations today. Paul teaches in Romans 1 and 2 that the same moral standards revealed to Israel through the oracles of God were more generally revealed to all men through general or natural revelation. Israel did not have a unique moral code, as though God operated with a double standard for Israel and the Gentiles. Moreover, Israel was not completely different from modern nations or her Gentile neighbors, for like these others, Israel faced historical, pre-consummation, problems of crime, social justice, and punishment. The law of the Lord directed Israel as to the requirements of divine justice in such situations, and that law ought to be the standard of justice for crime and punishment everywhere else as well, even in nations that did not or do not have a corporate redemptive covenant with God. For social justice in God's eyes is not racially variable or different from nation to nation. Justice is absolute. 
If the civil aspects of God's law were meant only for Israel, as the critic says, then he should be asked to explain the New Testament's apparent practice of taking the standards of political ethics from God's law and asked what the New Testament standard for political justice is, if not God's commandments. Those who restrict the validity of the Old Testament law to Israel may not realize it, but their philosophic outlook is that of cultural relativism, where what counts as justice is adjusted from culture to culture. Those who press the argument that modern states are not bound to the civil aspects of God's law since it was given in a national and redemptive covenant with Israel will find that they cannot long maintain with consistency any of the Old Testament commandments today. Not only were the civil aspects of the law revealed in the same context of a national covenant, so also were the personal and interpersonal aspects of the law. If the passing away of the national covenant means the invalidation of those moral standards revealed within it, then we would lose even the Ten Commandments. If the judicial laws of the Old Testament are thought to have expired when God's purposes for the Jewish nation were complete, that is, if only the national aspects of the national covenant have passed away, then we would be overlooking the justice of those laws and their full purpose, which included of being a model to other nations, Deuteronomy 4, 6-8. through Besides, God's word never draws such a distinction between the personal aspects of the law and the political aspects, as though the one were any more or less a reflection of God's unchanging holiness than the other. Who are we to draw such a distinction on our own, with the aim of evading or laying aside a portion of those duties revealed by God? To read this into the text, rather than taking it from the text, is to lord it over the word of the Lord. 3. Israel's Heightened Purity The direction God gave to Jewish society was not a heightened standard of purity and did not embody a unique severity. It was not an intrusion of the standards of final judgment into the course of ordinary history. Heightened and unique standards would hardly be a model of justice and could not be fairly applied to other nations, and yet the Old Testament presents God's law as such a model and applied its standards to other nations. Moreover, if the civil law of the Old Testament really were a reflection of the standards of the final judgment, then all sins would have been crimes and all would have been punishable by death, neither of which was true, even if the penal sanctions of God's law are typological foreshadows of final judgment in some sense, they are not merely such foreshadows, they are also God's direction for justice in matters of crime and punishment prior to the final judgment. To hold that laws with a symbolic or typological aspect to them have been invalidated today would be to surrender the validity of more than certain civil commandments of the Old Testament. It would be to invalidate even the laws pertaining, for instance, to marriage and sexual purity, for they symbolize the relation of God to his people. 4. Multiple Moral Standards Some who criticize the perspective taken in this book say that magistrates, past or present, who are outside of Israel's theocracy, should rule according to the moral standards of general revelation, not those of God's law. The faulty assumption here, of course, is that God has two moral standards, one revealed through nature and conscience, and a different one revealed in the Bible. The biblical perspective is that the law revealed to the Jews in spoken form has been revealed in unspoken form to the Gentiles, and the two moral codes are coextensive. Paul did not somehow restrict natural revelation to the Decalogue. See, for example, in Romans 1.32. 
even if we could see how the Ten Commandments might be understood apart from their explanations and applications in the case laws. 5. Ignoring the evidence. Others who have disagreed with the perspective advanced herein have wanted to mitigate the force of subordinate aspects or observations in the arguments put forward. For example, disagreeing with the claim that Old Testament Jewish and Gentile rulers had religious titles. Even if we left such details undefended, however, the main lines of argumentation in favor of the position taken on the political use of God's law would be unaffected by these minor criticisms. Thus, such details need not be defended here, for they are not crucial to the case made. Others who have disagreed with the case made in this book have complained that it is made by inferences from Scripture, apparently instead of by direct and explicit statement of the political validity of God's law. But since the same misguided complaint could be made about major doctrines of the faith, for example the Trinity, the hypostatic union, it is hardly a telling point against our position here on political ethics. Another argument has been that if we temporarily set aside the major New Testament evidence that is enlisted in support of the perspective taken in these studies, and if we then read the New Testament without that evidence present, then we would not get the impression that God's law, in its political aspects, is valid today. It is thought that the purported evidence in favor of our position has been mistakenly interpreted in a way that does not harmonize with the rest of the New Testament. This line of criticism shows how desperate some can become in trying to refute the thesis that the political use of God's law is valid today. In the first place, if we subtract the positive evidence for the thesis, the rest of the New Testament is not contrary to the thesis. It is simply silent on the subject. In the second place, it is hardly a legitimate complaint against a position that it has no support when its main lines of support are put to the side. A lawyer who argued for his client by merely asking the jury to ignore the evidence presented by the prosecutor would not long retain his job. Until definite negative evidence against the thesis can be adduced from the New Testament, we should acknowledge that Scripture teaches the political use of God's law. Such negative evidence has yet to be produced by any published critic of the perspective taken in these studies. Appeals to the New Testament emphasis or to the impression made by the New Testament are simply too vague and subjective to have any critical weight in theological decisions. Arguments Centering on Church-State Relations 1. New Testament Differences Those who disagree with the political use of God's law sometimes argue that because the relation of church to state is different today from what it was in the Old Testament, the laws governing society must likewise be different. It is hard to see what rationale one could have for such a line of thought, however, since the equity, validity, and authority of Old Testament civil laws were not somehow made dependent upon some specific relation of church to state. That is, Moses never conditioned the obligation of civil magistrates upon a special church-state interaction. Whatever changes in that relationship have been introduced in the New Testament, would be ethically irrelevant to the justice of the civil code which magistrates were required to enforce. There is not one kind of justice for a rapist when the church's relation to the state is X, and another kind of justice for a rapist when the church's relation to the state is Y. Rape is rape, and justice is justice, regardless of the intimacy of church with state or the lack thereof. Old Testament magistrates, not priests, let us be reminded judged and punished rapists and other criminal offenders. 
even as the New Testament magistrates must also deal with the criminal problem of rape. The extraneous relation of these magistrates to priests, or to the church, is not pertinent to their relation to the criminal, nor does it affect what justice demands in the case of crime. The church-state question is really to the side. The common claim that the religious and the civil aspects of community life were fused in Old Testament Israel simply will not square with the reading of the Old Testament text, as previous chapters have pointed out. This is not to say or claim, as some critics have thought, that the church-state relation in the Old Testament is identical in every respect with the church-state relation in the New. Such a premise is not indispensable to the position taken herein. The position does not stand opposed to the inaccurate argumentation often heard, which says that there was no separation of church and state in Israel. The Old Testament cult was clearly a separate authority and function from the Old Testament civil rule. This observation, it must be explained to some critics, does not imply that the Old Testament cult is taken as wholly identical with the New Testament church. There is a parallel or analogy, however, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 13 and 14. Kings could not sacrifice and priests could not execute in the Old Testament situation. The state and the church had separate functions and directions. Nevertheless, some writers have believed that there are significant morally significant, differences between our situation today and the church-state situation in Old Testament Israel. Israel was a priestly nation then, whereas the church, not America, has that status today. This is correct. The religious mission of the corporate body, the priestly function of the community as a whole, has now been assumed by a different kind of body, the international community of faith, rather than a particular nation. However, this says nothing about the relation of church to state within the nation of Israel, and it certainly does not belie the legitimate separation between the two which we read of elsewhere in the text. 2. The Theocracy Argument It has been claimed that the Old Testament church-state, the sense given to theocracy, has now been replaced with an international church, minus state, in the new this flounders on the mistaken assumption that the Old Testament was a church state. As explained previously, priests and kings had separate authorities, and the membership of the state was not coextensive with the membership of the religious body, for example, the sojourners in Israel. 3. The Redemptive Community Argument The claims that the Old Testament state was a redemptive community and that the state existed for a religious purpose are too ambiguous, being obviously correct on some interpretations. For example, that the state arose out of God's redemption of the people from Egypt and served the religious aim of punishing social evil, yet irrelevant to the annulment of the civil aspects of the law of God. Such a redemptive state viewpoint is obviously so mistaken with respect to other interpretations. For example, that the civil laws had a redemptive effect or that the state authorities were the cultic or religious heads as well that it cannot be of any service as an argument. Similarly, claims to the effect that the Old Testament state punished religious crimes, for example blasphemy, overlook the religious character of other crimes as well, for example murder and adultery. Such arguments are based on a false notion of the secular-sacred dichotomy, which is promoted by modern humanism, and they are therefore unhelpful in theological argumentation. What the opponents of biblical law need to demonstrate but do not, is that religious crimes like blasphemy are of no continuing relevance or importance for social justice in the modern state. 
Is it contrary to the church's evangelistic mission for Christians to promote the political use of God's law if this means the state will punish blasphemers and open idolaters? Such a conflict would be possible only if we first assume that God's word would contradict itself, teaching one thing regarding civil ethics and a contradictory thing about evangelism. Promoting the punishment of blasphemers is no more contrary to evangelistic concern than it is the promoting of punishment of murderers. Arguments relevant to the penal sanctions. 1. Only for Israel. Against the political use of God's law today, some urge the consideration that the penal sanctions of the law were given only to Israel. Since the Bible teaches, however, that the whole law of God was the moral obligation of nations existing outside of and prior to Israel, for example, Sodom, the Canaanite tribes, where is the qualifying exception revealed which says the penal sanctions were excluded from this obligation? It is not to be found. The argument before us is read into the Bible, not taken from the Bible. The Bible praised pagan rulers for enforcing the sanctions of God's law. For example, Ezra chapter 7 verses 25 through 27. 2. Israel as church only. Some critics claim that the Old Testament penalties were revealed to Israel as the church rather than as the state, and that only the church today should punish religious offenses. Scriptural support for such reasoning is totally lacking. However, it was the magistrates of Israel who enforced the requirements of restitution and retribution, for those requirements were revealed for them, not the priests. So it was not Israel as the church, but rather Israel as a civil state, which punished thieves, rapists, and blasphemers. If only the religious crimes in the law are reserved, allegedly, for the discipline of the church today, leaving at least some offenders to be dealt with by the state, then we will need a principled, biblically defined way of distinguishing religious from non-religious crimes. Apart from that, the argument before us is simply unworkable or arbitrary. Worse yet, it is without scriptural warrant. The premise that only the church is called upon to deal with religious offenses today, whatever they might be, is one that will need biblical backing, given the New Testament endorsement of the law of God in general, as well as the New Testament doctrine that magistrates should enforce the law of God, for whom they are a minister avenging wrath against evildoers. Is blasphemy less heinous in God's eyes today, or less destructive of social justice, or less relevant to the concerns of God's minister in the state? It is perfectly true, as some point out, that the evil which Paul says the magistrate should punish, Romans 13.4, must be restricted, since not all sins are crimes. But the reasonable thing seems to be to restrict it according to the law of God, not to make it more restrictive than the law of God. The basic problem with most arguments against the position taken in this book is that these arguments have no biblical warrant and authority. God's people must then set them aside as without force. 3. The Severity of the Law To say that the penal sanctions of the Old Testament are too severe for a period of common grace is to overlook at least two important points. 1. Israel of old enjoyed God's common grace, at least as defined in Genesis 8.22, and was still required to enforce his law, and two, God's political laws serve to preserve the outward order and justice of a civilization, and thus are a sign of God's common grace, rather than detracting from the common grace. If common grace really conflicts with God's law, then the critic will need to demonstrate that what he means by common grace is actually taught in Scripture and logically implies the law's abrogation. 
This has yet to be done. The parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 24-30 and 36-43, teaches that the general execution of unrighteous unbelievers awaits the final judgment, not that civil magistrates ought never to execute those individuals guilty of civil crimes, more specific than general unbelief, or else there would be no penal sanction of death, even for murder, and the specific purpose of the state, the power of the sword, would vanish. 4. The Absence of Explicit Sanctions It has been suggested, without due reflection, that the Old Testament penal sanctions did not render what crimes really and fully deserve punishment, namely eternal damnation, and thus today it is acceptable for magistrates to punish in a way less than what justice of the law requires. But in the first place of the Old Testament law did give what every offense justly deserve, Hebrews 2.2, within the realm of civil justice. That is why thieves were punished differently from rapists, even though both thieves and rapists will suffer in hell eternally. In the second place, if the law of God prescribed less than what full justice demands for criminals, how would that fact justify a magistrate requiring even less than what the law prescribed? Such a magistrate would simply be guilty of a failure to do what God ordered him to do, not even living up to the allegedly limited penal severity of the law. 5. The argument from silence. Three last arguments may be quickly mentioned, all of which are guilty of notorious fallacies in reasoning. First, there is the argument from silence, that the New Testament does not call for us to campaign for the penal sanctions of the law, as in the case of the incestuous fornicator, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1-5. through 5. While there may not be a specific illustration available, given the character of the society and magistrate in those days, but the principles are indeed taught, as we have discussed in previous studies. Paul need not say anything further about the magistrate's duty regarding incest, for instance, since the Old Testament and natural revelation already are adequate. What he needed to reveal was the disciplining procedures required of the church, to whom, after all, the Corinthian epistle was written, not the civil magistrate. Given the biblical doctrine of the law's continuing validity, Deuteronomy 4.2 and Matthew 5.17-19, we need more than silence to nullify God's commands. 6. The Argument from Abuse Second, there is an argument from abuse, the argument that unsaved magistrates have abused God's law by trying to enforce it in the past, leading to such horrors as the Inquisition. But of course, God never commanded these abuses in his law. For example, he did not grant the magistrate the right to judge heretics in the first place. And so this argument is actually an argument in favor of our thesis. Since these abuses violate God's law, God's law ought to be endorsed as valid in order to authoritatively to condemn the abuses of personal freedom, dignity, and life. If abuses of law by the magistrate are corrected by removing any law to abuse, then there will be no law for the magistrate to enforce except his own arbitrary will, which is the surest way to achieve tyranny. 7. The Argument from Tradition Third. There is an argument from tradition, the claim that the perspective advanced in these chapters has never been advanced by any of our respected forefathers in theology. Such an argument is theologically futile, however, if our obligation is to believe what Scripture, only and completely Scripture, teaches rather than our fallible traditions. Matthew 15, verses 3-9 through If one cannot show that Scripture does not actually endorse the position advanced herein, then he will have to choose between God's word and his theological tradition. Those who are submissive to the Lord's authority will know which one they must choose. 
but beyond this we can briefly indicate that there is an abundant evidence that respected theologians of the past have taught and promoted the perspective taken herein toward the political use of God's law. In my other books on the subject, one can pursue indications from Busser, Calvin, Bullinger, Latimer, Cartwright, Perkins, Gillespie, Bolton, Ames, Cotton, and many others who have recognized the general authority of God's law and the political use of it today. It has been a mainstay of reformed political ethics for centuries. 8. The Last Resort Since none of the common or published arguments against the position which we have taken herein succeeds in disproving the general validity of God's law or its political obligation today, the only thing left for one to do if he wants to continue to resist the position is to point to certain horrid examples of what God's law requires, appealing to our emotion or autonomous reason that such things simply cannot be accepted today into our morals. That is, the critic resorts to ridiculing the moral orders revealed by God to Israel. One is left with the choice between following the wisdom and evaluations of men who have no biblical standard and who actually disagree with the biblical norms, and following wholeheartedly the dictates of God's law. Shall our feelings correct the Bible, or should the Bible correct our feelings? Which will have supreme authority, the thinking of sinful men or the infallible word of the Lord? Quote, let God be found true, though all men are liars, end quote. Romans 3, 4, and quote, choose this day whom you will serve, end quote. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Conclusion. In chapter 29, we found no successful rebuttal to the general validity of the Old Testament law, and in this chapter we have seen that the general validity of the law applies just as much to political affairs as to private, family, and ecclesiastical ones. God is offended by all expressions of injustice and unrighteousness, including, if not especially, by those placed in positions of civil rule over their fellow men. If they refuse to submit to the Lord, Psalm 2, they will eventually answer to the King of Kings, 1 Timothy 6.15, for their rebellion. This means that there are standards of justice to which they will be answerable. If those standards are not found in the Old Testament, then why not? Then where else? Such questions receive no convincing and theologically consistent answer from those who reject the political use of the Old Testament law. Do these critics of theonomy believe that political rulers are free to do whatever seems right in their own eyes? We have seen attempts made to disprove the validity of the socio-political laws of Moses by appealing to some special feature about Old Testament Israel. However, such a special feature is never clearly defined. The segment of the law which is thought to be invalidated is never delineated on the basis of explicit principle. Specific laws are rather included or excluded from the segment arbitrarily and subjectively by the person advancing such an argument. The alleged unique feature is often not even actually true about Old Testament Israel. And finally, no demonstration is forthcoming, grounded upon Scripture, that the validity of this intended segment of the Mosaic Law rested entirely upon that unique feature of Old Testament Israel in the first place. Other kinds of arguments against the modern use of the Old Testament in political ethics appeal to considerations which are utterly irrelevant to the truth or falsity of that idea. Arguments from silence, subjective impression, abuse, tradition, and ridicule. In short, those who have argued against the political use of the Mosaic Law today have fallen into errors and fallacious reasoning which no Christian scholar can find acceptable. 
In the end, one does not find good reasons being given for turning away from the moral standards of socio-political affairs found in the Old Testament law. When the poor reasoning is stripped away, what is left as the core of opposition to those standards is personal feeling. The personal feeling that those standards are too harsh or tyrannical for our pluralistic age. Of course, to be intellectually honest, one is then compelled to stop and ask whether God's law should change pluralism or whether pluralism ought to change God's law. That question should not be begged, though it usually is. If magistrates are indeed ordained as the public ministers of God, Romans 13, 1 and 4, does Jehovah morally permit them to serve many gods or does he require them to submit to his rule alone? This may seem despotic to some minds, but the alternative is just another kind of despotism, one that is infinitely worse. The despotism of those civil rulers who deem themselves free from the objective standards of God's holy law. Then we get the worst kind of tyranny imaginable, where political might is not restrained by what is morally objectively right. For this reason, we must see the failed arguments examined in this chapter as more than simply illustrations of fallacious reasoning in the intellectual sphere. We must see them as ultimately dangerous, even if unwittingly so, to the well-being of Christian civilization. Conclusion Chapter 31 The Authority of God's Law Today Quote, The question is this, By what standard are moral judgments to be made? How do we determine in any particular case what godliness requires of me or my society? End quote. There has been much more to the study of Christian ethics than has been discussed in this book. There are foundational issues about the perception and production of godliness in ourselves and in our society which have not been touched. Nearly all of the specific moral questions which surround us have been given no applied answer. A lot has been left unsaid, and a lot more study is required. Nevertheless, the issue addressed by this book is systematically basic to Christian ethical reasoning. It asks a question which is impossible to avoid and which influences every other aspect of one's ethical theory. People may not reflect explicitly upon the question, and people may not answer it well. But everyone proceeds upon some answer or another to that inevitable question in Christian ethics. The question is this, by what standard are moral judgments to be made? How do we determine in any particular case what godliness requires of me or my society? Other questions may be interesting and even important, but the Christian ethics, which is itself a reflection of the Christian faith, cannot be cogently developed and practically employed without an answer to the question of criteria. How should we live? What must we do? What kind of people should we be? It all depends upon the standard we use. Better, it all depends upon the standard that God himself uses for judging good and evil. If we would know the divine norms of righteousness, then Christian ethics will naturally depend upon God's self-revelation and the proper understanding of his word. Has his word been correctly interpreted by those who, quote, turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness, end quote, and argue that we may, quote, continue in sin that grace may abound, end quote. Not at all. Jude 4, Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. There should be no doubt whatsoever about the premise that New Testament believers, those who have experienced the grace of God, must live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, being zealous of good works. Titus 2, 11 and 14. God's grace has created us in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared 
that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2, 8-10 The New Testament does not eliminate the call for holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 Saving faith must be a living, active, and working faith. James 2, verses 14-26 Therefore we can assert it as beyond question that those who love the Savior must demonstrate lives characterized by obedience. Hebrews 5, 9 and John 14, 15 Should this obedience extend to the Old Testament? Should those saved by grace have anything at all to do with God's law? And if they should, can the Old Testament commandment still be the standard of moral obligation for society and the state as well? If Christian ethics cannot avoid answering the normative question, as claimed above, then Christian ethics will eventually be forced to answer these questions of biblical interpretation as well. The disturbing thing is that so many Christian teachers and writers answer them without sufficient biblical proof or concern for consistency. It is as though personal feeling gives them a conclusion from the outset for which they subsequently seek some kind of reason. Many Christians will just take the word of such respected teachers for granted on these matters, only later to find, upon reflection and examination, that their teachers had not been thinking clearly about the issues involved at all. The many negative opinions about the law of God as a standard for Christian obedience in our day represent a setback from the theological insights of past generations of Christian scholarship, notably the tradition of the Puritans and the Westminster Standards. What is taken for granted today as the common and obvious answer to whether we should obey the Old Testament in modern civil affairs, for instance, did not always enjoy that status in the eyes of the earlier Christians. The winds of common opinion have shifted. Why? Has some radical new turn or discovery in Christian scholarship, some brilliant exegesis and persuasive reasoning, intervened between the Puritan age and our own today so as to account for this shift in widespread sentiment about the use of God's law in the Christian life? If so, it is hard to point to just what it might have been. It has rather changed social circumstances and opinions, not advances in scholarship which have brought about the difference. But the word of the Lord abides forever. 1 Peter 1.25 and Isaiah 40 verse 8. If our Reformed and Puritan forefathers were basically correct in their approach to the Old Testament law of God, as I believe, then the truth of that position is still discernible in the objective revelation of God's word, even if it is an unpopular truth in a secularized age. Whether congenial to popular opinion today or not, the conclusions to which we have been driven in our study of God's unchanging word indicate that the standard by which Christians should live is not restricted to the New Testament, but includes the law of God revealed in the Old Testament. Scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35 With God there can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. James 1.17 our studies have pointed to the conclusion that New Testament believers ought to maintain a pronomian rather than antinomian attitude. They should seek to purge themselves of autonomous ethical reasoning in favor of a theonomic approach to moral issues. They should presume that the commandments revealed by God in the Old Testament are definitive of righteous living for themselves and their society, being careful not to speak against the law and judge it. James 4.11 those who teach that we may break even the least commandment in the law and prophets will be least within the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.19 The theonomic and pronomian approach which we have taken in this book to the normative questions about Christian living and the Old Testament law is conveniently summarized in the following ten theses. 1. 
Since the fall, it has always been unlawful to use the law of God in hopes of establishing one's own personal merit and justification, in contrast or complement to salvation by way of promise and faith. Commitment to obedience is but the lifestyle of faith, a token of gratitude for God's redeeming grace. 2. The word of the Lord is the sole, supreme, and unchallengeable standard for the actions and attitudes of all men in all areas of life. This word naturally includes God's moral directives. Law. 3. Our obligation to keep the law of God cannot be judged by any extra-scriptural standard, such as whether its specific requirements, when properly interpreted, are congenial to past traditions or modern feelings and practices. 4. We should presume that Old Testament standing laws continue to be morally binding in the New Testament, unless they are rescinded or modified by further revelation. 5. In regard to the Old Testament law, the New Covenant surpasses the Old Covenant in glory, power, and finality, thus reinforcing former duties. The New Covenant also supersedes the Old Covenant shadows, thereby changing the application of sacrificial, purity, and separation principles, redefining the people of God and altering the significance of the Promised Land. 6. God's revealed standing laws are a reflection of his immutable moral character and, as such, are absolute in the sense of being non-arbitrary, objective, universal, and established in advance of particular circumstances, thus applicable to general types of moral situations. 7. Christian involvement in politics calls for recognition of God's transcendent, absolute, revealed law as a standard by which to judge all social codes. 8. Civil magistrates in all ages and places are obligated to conduct their offices as ministers of God, avenging divine wrath against criminals and giving an account on the final day of their service before the King of Kings and the Creator and Judge. 9. The general continuity, which we presume with respect to the moral standards of the Old Testament, applies just as legitimately to matters of socio-political ethics as it does to personal, family, or ecclesiastical ethics. 10. The civil precepts of the Old Testament, standing judicial laws, are a model of perfect social justice for all cultures, even in the punishment of criminals. These propositions highlight the essential points and distinctive features of the position developed in this book. The precious truth of salvation by grace alone, number one, is the context within which every other thesis is developed and understood. Theonomic ethics is committed to developing an overall Christian world and life view. Number two, according to the regulating principle of sola scriptura. Number three, and the hermeneutic of covenant theology. Number four, the new and better covenant established by Christ does offer biblical warrant for recognizing changes in covenantal administration. Number five, but not changes in moral standards, lest the divinely revealed ethic be reduced to situationism or relativism, just one tribal perspective among many in an evolutionary history of ethics. Number six. Righteousness and justice, according to biblical teaching, have a universal character, precluding any double standard of morality. Theonomic ethics likewise rejects legal positivism and maintains that there is law above the civil law, to which appeal can be made against the tyranny of rulers and the anarchy of overzealous reformers alike. Number seven. Since Jesus Christ is Lord over all, Civil magistrates are his servants and owe obedience to his revealed standards for them. Number eight. There is no biblically based jurisdiction for exempting civil authorities from responsibility to the universal standards of justice. 
found in God's Old Testament revelation. 3. Therefore, in the absence of biblically grounded argumentation which releases the civil magistrate from Old Testament social norms, number 4 and 5, it follows from our previous premises that in the exercise of their offices, rulers are morally responsible to obey the revealed standards of social justice in the Old Testament law. Number 10. In light of the theses leading up to it, the above conclusion does not seem so controversial after all. It makes perfectly good ethical sense for a Christian. Besides, that conclusion has a great deal of practical value in our day. It is not accidental that the glaring socio-political and criminal problems of the late 20th century concern matters where our society has turned against the specific directives of God's law. Humanism has been taught in our schools and media. It has been practiced in economics, medicine, politics, and our courts. And the results have been a social disaster. Human life is treated as cheap. Sexual purity is an outdated concept. Truth and honesty have little place in the real world of business or politics. Repeat offenders and crimes which go completely unpunished belittle the criminal justice system. Prison reform is desperately needed. In short, humanism has proven its ineffectiveness in case after case. Where can we turn for socio-political wisdom which can effectively counter the degeneration and disintegration of our culture? The only acceptable answer will be to turn to God's directives for social justice, and those are, for the most part, found in the Old Testament commandments to Israel as a nation, a nation facing the same moral problems about life, sex, property, and truth which all nations must face, including our own. Christians who claim that our ethical standards are restricted to the New Testament cannot, if consistent, deal with the full range of moral issues in our day. Ask them whether it is now immoral to have sexual relations with animals. They will gasp at the thought but find nothing forbidding it in the New Testament scriptures. At best they can say fornication is condemned, only thereby presupposing what they originally denied namely that New Testament morality is identical with the standards of the Old Testament, in which case fornication applies to the same outlawed acts in both dispensations. Ask them whether it is now immoral for a woman to marry her father. They may say yes, but they will not find that specific case of incest dealt with in the New Testament scriptures. Ask them whether rape is a punishable crime. Again, no New Testament directive covers it. Ask them what the equitable punishment should be for rape. No New Testament answer. Ask them whether they can even show that murder should be a capital crime today. Once more, they will find no specific New Testament answer to that question, despite the fact that many conservative believers assume that it is there. It becomes ever so clear that it is easy to say one holds only to New Testament ethics, but nearly impossible to systematically and consistently maintain that position. In actual fact, Christians do not find it a workable policy to follow, departing from that espoused position whenever it seems convenient or necessary to do so. But that simply opens the door to arbitrariness. The preceding book has attempted to provide a principled, systematic, and consistent approach to the question of whether and how the Old Testament law constitutes a standard for making moral decisions today. This audio version of By This Standard by Greg Bonson has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Shane Peterson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. 
Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.